So we are in the second Sunday of a series on the Minor Prophets. These are a group of 12 books that come at the end of the Old Testament, each named after an individual prophet. And frankly, these books make difficult reading. And here's the reason. Outside of Jonah, these are not narratives so much as they are compilations of the prophecies of each prophet. And so there is not a narrative plot that goes along with any of these books outside of Jonah. And this is why we're going to be looking at most of them based on their common themes rather than going slowly uh, through each one of them. So last week we were actually in Hosea. We, we've skipped the book of Joel. This week we're in the book of Amos. But from Amos we're taking a theme that's consistent throughout almost all of the minor prophets. Now, if you have trouble finding the book of Amos in your Bible, that just means you're normal. But I hope that you'll try to find it. If you'll look in the table of contents, whatever you need to do, that you'll find Amos uh, chapter 6 in your Bible. Now, the prophets are like physicians for spirituality and morality. Similar to a doctor identifying sickness, here in Amos, we're looking at one of many instances where the prophets identify moral problems within their culture, and they call on the people to deal with these. Now, to start with, it's important we realize that the prophets had very hard jobs. Contrary to the way a, a modern person might like to think of prophets like Amos, these were not sick personalities who really enjoyed getting into people's business. They were not. In fact, they usually carried out their work with some reluctance, wishing they had another option. So Amos says at one place, this is chapter 8, he's kind of giving his background. He says, I was no prophet, nor was I a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flocks, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now quickly, Amos encountered people who were telling him, don't prophesy against Israel, don't preach against us. You have to think that there were moments when Amos would have liked to go back to his herds and his sycamore figs. They talked back a lot less than the people of Israel did as he carried out his calling from God to them. The prophets are very much like some of you who have to endure difficult things for your faith. They were called by God to embody and to preach hard truths for the context in which they lived. And no matter how much they tried to resist it, which we're going to see soon with Jonah, some of them tried to resist it very much. In the end, they surrendered to God. This past week, I read a speech by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Jan, uh, I think, told Scott about this speech, and then Scott told me about it, and I was reading something else this week, having forgotten to look it up, and it referenced the speech, and I thought, I think I'm supposed to read this. So Solzhenitsyn was a Russian who was exiled to the United States during the period of the Soviet Union. And while here, four years after he arrived, in 1978, he gave a commencement address at Harvard University, and he spoke in this very prophetic-like way. So he started out speaking at Harvard, saying this. He says, your motto is veritas, truth, but seldom is truth pleasant. It is almost invariably bitter. Now, you know if someone starts a talk with you in that way, it's about to get tough, 
right? And it would get tough. We're going to come back to some things that Solzhenitsyn says later in the sermon. But for us, the harsh truths presented by the prophets were tough to bear then, and they're still tough to bear now. Christians have to always bear in mind what Christ said, what He promised, that the truth, regardless of what it is a truth about, whether it's about you, about the world, about someone else, the truth will always set you free. On the other side of truth's sting, there is always freedom. Sin, on the other hand, is the opposite of the truth. It is living against the grain of the world, and that is inevitably enslaving, regardless of how freeing it might feel for a time. Now to our passage in Amos. We're going to begin at chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. This phrase sets the stage for everything that's to come in this section. Woe is an Old Testament way of calling people to attention when they're treading on thin ice, when they're courting disaster. And we're going to look at these woes through three questions. Who is it that is at ease? Second, What's wrong with them being at ease? And third, what do they need to do? So first, who is it that is at ease? And the answer is pretty straightforward. It is those who are powerful and wealthy, whose life situation provides them a feeling of relaxed security. Amos is prophesying during the 8th century B.C., And we know that Israel experienced a season of a thriving economy and of political safety during this period of the 8th century. So as a smaller nation, Israel was often having to deal with superpower-like nations trying to nimble away at the edges of their territory, coming in and trying to take over. But for a while, these nations were preoccupied with their own internal issues. And so Israel, for this time, was trouble-free. And during this period, there are people who are accumulating wealth, and they're building up their military forces, even making military alliances with former enemies. So Amos is describing a season of luxurious and leisurely living. Here's the second half of verse 1. Woe to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. In other words, those who are confident in their military fortress. Samaria is on a hill. They can see out, see, see people coming. They have a military advantage. They feel secure. This is verses 4 through 6. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory, who eat lambs from the flock, who sing idle songs, who drink wine by the bowl, and anoint themselves with the finest oils. Now in verse 7, Amos says, These shall be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out on their ivory bed shall pass away. So not long after Amos' prophecy, the nation of of Assyria was no longer uh, bogged down in its internal affairs. And so they rose up, and they conquered Israel, and they led them into exile. Amos is saying that those who are currently at ease, who currently experience leisure and security, that they are going to be at the front of the line of exiles. Now this leads to the second question. We know who's at ease, the the powerful, the wealthy, those who give them a sense that they're secure. 
The second question, what's wrong with them being at ease? Now, this is a deceivingly simple question. Rest and enjoyment of God's creation are good things. We, we have to know that as we read this. Rest and enjoyment of God's creation are good things. We're gathering here to worship on the day that Christians consider a Sabbath, and God commands Christians to rest, to take rest. That's a good thing. The final promise for God's people in the book of Revelation is that we will finally discover rest. Blessed are those who die in the Lord, for they will rest from their labor. Their deeds will follow them. We hear in Revelation 14. Jesus calls people to come to them, to him, so that they can find rest. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, as to the enjoyment of creation and pleasure, this is what we heard in 1 Timothy that Alec read to us. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And rich food and drink, too, are a central part of God's promise when the world is healed of sin and evil. This is from Isaiah chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. So let's take account of all of this. God desires our rest, and He desires that we delight in His creation. So back to the question, what's wrong with them being at ease, enjoying the fruits of the creation? From everything we hear in the prophets, even though on the surface this was a good time politically and economically, it was not a good time spiritually. Israel allowed their successes to dull their spiritual senses. Early in Israel's history, they were small and they were vulnerable, but they experienced powerful support from God. This is where we get stories, the great stories of the Old Testament, like the crossing of the Red Sea and the miraculous defeat of the city of Jericho. Israel is young at this time, and they have this childlike faith in God. But during the latter period, they became more obsessed with wealth and power. And this meant that the things that had made Israel special, that made them stand out, things like being a society which cared for its vulnerable, a place of justice and equity, these factors were forgotten. So this is what the prophet Hosea was getting at when he said this, Israel is among the nations as a useless vessel. Israel was supposed to stand out among the nations, to function among them as salt and light, but they no longer did. And so they had become like what Jesus described as salt that's no longer salty, no longer useful for anything. It can simply be thrown out. So let me ask the question once again, what is wrong with these folks who are at ease? There are two main things. And the first of them is, they're not really at ease. Despite all appearances, they are not really at ease. This is something the prophets teach us. A life built around getting more can never be a restful life. 
This kind of use of the creation is more about consumption than it is about genuine delight in the creation. They've become more like gluttons than connoisseurs. People who live this way will never be truly content with their lives. Their contentment rests upon a constant getting of more and more and more. In C.S. Lewis's little book, Screwtape Letters, it, it revolves around a chief demon who is teaching a lower demon how to continue to trick humans and continue to diminish them, to keep them from what God intends, a, a life of flourishing with life in Him. And he says that this craving for more is key to diminishing humanity. Listen to what he's, this chief demon says. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. It is more certain and it's better style to get the man's soul and give him nothing in return. That is what really gladdens our father's heart. I love the phrase at the beginning, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. This is what it's like to live with an addiction to consumption. You continue to need more and more to sustain the pleasure that you get from these pleasures. So this is the first thing that's wrong with them being at ease. They're not truly at ease. True contentment and rest is found only when we're rooted in God the Creator rather than in the things of the creation itself. There's a second problem with them being at ease. Their pleasures make them spiritually numb. Their pleasures make them spiritually numb. They can no longer see the very real problems around them. So they're at ease while others suffer. This is in verses 3 and 6. They put off a day of disaster, Amos says. In other words, they say, there's nothing wrong. Everything is good. But they bring near the seat of violence. In other words, they allow problems to go unchecked. Injustice is allowed to take root and grow. They drink wine by the bowlful, verse 6, and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but they're not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Joseph here is a stand-in for the nation of Israel. The problem appears to be that while some are experiencing a, a financial windfall, others are destitute. And especially in Israel, God had deemed that Israel would be a place where no person would have to go hungry. And so as this is happening, it points to a lack of spiritual sensitivity. They were being hollowed out from the inside. Some were flourishing, but they were spiritually a void. So these are the two problems with them being at ease. One, they're not truly at ease. They're caught up in a cycle of needing more to keep up the impression of being at ease. And two... Their pleasures make them spiritually numb. So the final question. What are they to do? What can they do about this? I've shared with you before about one of the Napotnik family's favorite movies that they recommended to us. And it depicts a hell and fire preacher who loves to say uh, about the people he's going to preach to, they're all going to hell and someone has to tell them. And he's excited about telling people this, and he's not presenting another option for them. He's just telling them it's going to happen. I don't think they were trying to tell me anything when they recommended this movie, but 
This is not the way it is with the prophets. That's a caricature of Christian preachers. That's not the way it is with the prophets. They are giving a warning because there's still a chance for something different to happen. This is who God is. He's not an ogre who takes pleasure in our pain. He's a jealous lover who pursues his beloved, calling her to turn back. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you've stumbled because of your iniquity, he says in Hosea. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them, God says. This is the kind of God he is. He warns us of according disaster, but he always loves to see us turn back to him. What are the things that we might need to repent of? I find it powerful that in 1978, this Alexander Solzhenitsyn said this. He said that after the suffering of many years of violence and oppression in his home country, the Soviet Union, the human soul longs for things higher, warmer, and purer than those that are offered by today's mass living habits that he found in the United States. He mentions TV and the media as examples of these mass living habits. What do you think Solzhenitsyn would say to us today, to our culture? He goes on to describe America as having a spiritual exhaustion, he says, similar to the nation of Israel's, created by an endless cycle of consumption. An exhaustion that he says would only voluntarily, the only voluntary inspired self-restraint could cure. Being a Christian in America today requires constant checks on our capacity for self-restraint. Because there are not many other things that will check our self-restraint. Almost anything is available to us at our fingertips, whether it's material objects, and we can get debt if we're out of money, or it's media or TV, or it's constant communication. We no longer know how to be alone with ourselves and alone with God. It is as easy as it has ever been to pursue ease and rest through consumption rather than through God. But this is an endless cycle. We will never truly find any satisfaction in this way of life. If we want to find genuine peace, we must often repent and return to God. Now lastly, Solzhenitsyn also said that our emphasis on freedom in America has a shadow side. He says that as a whole people no longer bear a sense of responsibility or obligation to things like moral virtues and care for one's neighbor. We have promoted laws just for the sake of people being able to do as much as humanly possible and still get away with it, even if it is not good for their soul. And now, in our world today, We see people who are searching for causes to care about, especially the younger generation, through things like social justice and creation care. But here's the problem. There's no clear direction in how to do these things apart from anger because they're not rooted in anything. But here's the wonderful part. 
the church has the resources for all of this. Because when you come into the church, you should find freedom. Freedom from your sin through Jesus Christ. Freedom from your addiction to yourself through Jesus Christ. In Christ, the crucified King, you are set free. But you're set free so that in the words of 2 Corinthians, you will no longer live for yourself alone, but for Him who died for you and was raised. The cross is a symbol of freedom, of forgiveness, but it is also a symbol of responsibility, of obligation. You're now called to a life that is marked by loving devotion and service to your king and to the world that your king gave himself for. So the church... It's a community of freedom, of freedom from sin, but it is also a community of responsibility to each other and to the community and the world that we're a part of. God gave himself in love for us and for the world. And so in following Jesus, we are also called to give ourselves in love for each other and for the world itself. So here are two questions to close. First, are you living a life of self-restraint? Or are you caught up in a cycle of needing more and more to keep you with a sense of satisfaction? Are you living a life of self-restraint? Voluntary self-restraint. Or are you caught up in a cycle of just needing more and more? And two, Are you living a life of loving service? Sacrificing yourself and for for others and for the community that you're a part of. Counterintuitively, this is the kind of life in which we find contentment and joy as we follow our King, Jesus Christ. A life that gives itself for God and for others. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.